Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, and the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots, and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. For sports fans, the date February 22, 1980, holds special significance. Sports Illustrated called it the top sports moment of the 20th century. I'm speaking, of course, about the Olympic hockey game between the Soviet national team and the United States, uh, States team that was made up of amateurs and collegiate players. The game was dubbed the Miracle on Ice. Al Michaels, who was announcing the game for ABC, became famous for his statement in the last few seconds of the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! <laughs> But I must debate Mr. Michael's choice of words. Was the victory astounding? Absolutely. Was it shocking? I would say so, especially to the Soviets, who had won the last six gold medals in the last seven years and had beat the NHL All-Star team 6-0 just a year earlier. Not to mention that they had just crushed this same American team 10-3 in Madison Square Garden just a couple of weeks earlier. But using the word miraculous does damage to its meaning. A miracle by definition is a surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. The US's win over the Soviets was indeed surprising and welcome to those cheering them. But natural scientific laws can definitely most explain it. The U.S. team played better on the, that day than the Soviets did. And apart from the grace and providence that God normally gives, I would venture to say that the Soviet loss was not divinely caused, although President Jimmy Carter may have enjoyed the notion of it being so. <laughs> In today's popular culture, miraculous status has been attributed to many things that are not truly miracles. Kids in school will say things like, it's a miracle that I passed that test. Or perhaps a guy will ask a young lady out uh, on a date and exclaim, she said, yes, it's a miracle. 
When we look at the biblical account of the parting of the Red Sea, we see there is no denying that there was divine intervention on behalf of the people of Israel. But the miraculous is not just for the ancient people of God. He still intervenes in the lives of modern Christians when they are faced with impossible situations. As we look here at our text today, this morning, I want to make five brief observations and then apply some lessons to our own lives in hopes to encourage us when we face our own Red Sea. And so first, the, the first observation I would like to make this morning is God purposely puts Israel in a spot where it becomes impossible. Look at verse 2 again. Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piharoth, between Migdal and the sea. In front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. Right away in verse 2, we see that the Israelites are heading out of Egypt on what would seem like the best escape route. But then as they're going along and they're getting some momentum, two million people into the wilderness and an unknown number of animals, God presents them with their first test in their newfound freedom. He diverts them to a different route, one that places them in a precarious situation. In fact, Pharaoh uh, gets a report that they're wandering around lost in the wilderness. And so the first lesson we see today is, if you find yourself in an impossible situation, God may have been the one to put you there. There's a very important lesson here for us. Uh, the question for each of us is this. Will you follow the Lord even when it seems like he's leading you in the wrong direction? You know, it's easy to follow the Lord when everything is going well, everything makes sense, and it seems like he loves you. Imagine if you were the rich young ruler and you came to Jesus you never would have imagined that Jesus would have told you to get rid of all your riches and give everything that you own to the poor. And I honestly believe that he was ready to do whatever it took to follow Jesus except that one thing. That rich young ruler gets a lot of bad press in sermons. But in all fairness, tradition indicates that he decided to follow Jesus after all. Many believe that he may have been Barnabas, who became a great encourager of the church. And no doubt he would have been a great encouragement if he was using all that wealth to support the church works that were going on there. Many times the things that are impossible in our own lives have to do with the people that we are involved with. We want those people to be a certain way, but it's mainly out of our control. You know that the Lord brought you a certain individual to marry, and yet, there's, that person is not who you thought they were so many years ago. They've turned, to be out, uh, turned out to be somebody completely different. You find it impossible to go on with the way things are. You know those children were a gift from the Lord when they were little, but now the direction that they have taken is outside of what you wanted for them. And so now you are completely reliant on the Spirit of God to make a way where there seems to be no way to make a way through your Red Sea. The second observation I'd like to make here is that God intends to deal with Pharaoh by punishing him. Look at verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, 
and I will get the glory over Pharaoh and his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. You would think that Pharaoh would have cut his losses by now. He's seen numerous plagues, nine different plagues, and then also he has had his firstborn son die. And you think this would have done the trick. But amazingly, his heart is still ripe for the hardening. He has not heart, uh, softened his heart toward God, and so God is going to end him once and for all. He lures him into a watery grave along with his entire army. The lesson we see here in this second lesson is, if you find yourself in an impossible situation, God may be dealing with your enemy. Pharaoh's stubbornness is nothing compared to the stubbornness of Satan. And he is determined to kill and destroy as many human beings as possible. But be certain of this, God is luring him to a fiery grave. The lake of fire has been prepared for him and his fallen angels. But in the meantime, we are temporarily in Egypt still. We're making our way to the promised land, and yet we're still dealing with our Pharaoh, with Satan, still vulnerable to his attacks. We still find ourselves backed up against the Red Sea in certain circumstances. But the Bible tells us that God is a man of war. We see this in the next chapter where Moses is singing praises to the Lord for the deliverance that he's orchestrated. I truly felt like I was backed up against my own Red Sea and the enemy was swooping down for a kill shot when I was 25 years old. In fact, I didn't think I would live past the age of 30 the way my life was going at the time. I was a slave for sin. But the Lord had other plans for me on that January night when I knelt down some 30 years ago. What seemed impossible with men was possible with God. And he put my enemy to shame and made me his child. And that truly was a miracle. The next observation we can make here is, when you find yourself in an impossible situation, fear and complaining is not uncommon. Look at verses 10 and 11. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly, and the people cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you done this thing, bringing us out of Egypt? Many experts tell us that the most difficult thing for descendants of African-American slaves to overcome in the last 150 years is what psychologists call a slave mentality. Many of us who've been raised in families with a long history of property ownership and business entrepreneurship find it hard to understand. We say things like, isn't this America, the land of opportunity? Don't we all have the same chance as any other person? Well, it's true that there are unprecedented opportunities in this country. But to say that perhaps a poor kid from Wisconsin like myself has the exact same chance to make it uh, in a uh, fortune or business as Bill Gates' son is naive. The slave mentality has fear at its center. And it says that my life is not my own, that I am under the control of the master. And here the people of Israel are reacting in a slave mentality, even though they've just seen the mighty hand of God in Egypt at Passover. 
And so the lesson we learn here is, as we notice the bad example of Israel, is there a better response, perhaps? Like, fear not and stand firm? When we find ourselves complaining about our circumstances and fearing what is happening to us, this is a slave mentality. We are seeing things through the eyes of the flesh and not through the eyes of the spirit. This is what Romans 8 is talking about. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of, the, of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so what do we fear when we are walking in the flesh? First of all, we fear that God is not mindful of what is going on in our lives. Is he really for me? I don't feel like it at this moment. Next, we fear that we are suffering some kind of punishment for the things that we've done wrong, for our sins. We don't recognize that we are entirely forgiven and actually seen as clean in God's eyes. In verse 13 here, Moses encourages the people. And Moses said to them, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. And that's God's message to you. Stand firm. Fear not. I love you. Watch me work my salvation in your life. The fourth observation we make here this morning is that Moses commanded Israel to be silent and let the Lord fight for them. Look at verse 14. The Lord will fight for you, and you only need to be silent. I wonder how hard it was for the men when they saw all these Egyptians to come, coming down upon them to restrain themselves. I mean, they had two million people, probably a million men, strong from working in the brick pits. If it were me, I probably would have been very angry seeing that Egypt had gone back on its promises once more. I would have said, I'm going to die fighting for my freedom instead of going back to that brick pit. We have a million people here. They can't kill us all. But God's command is to stand still, to be silent, and see his mighty wonders. And so a lesson for us today is, during impossible times, our first inclination is to fight but in so doing, we sidetrack God's plan to win the battle for us. Have you under, ever wondered why we don't see a lot of miracles in America? I have. You'd think by the biblical accounts here that miracles should be fairly common. And I think part of it is that we as Americans are the kind that want to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, to fight for our freedoms. And instead of standing still, still and being silent and seeing the salvation of the Lord, we want to fight the battle for him. There are many stories of miraculous healings uh, in the third world countries. Francis Chan, who many of you probably know, is a famous pastor from California. 
he was leading some huge megachurch, and he decided to give all that up and take his family and move to Hong Kong. And when he moved to Hong Kong, he said that in the past he'd seen, you know, some miracles in his church healings, but nothing what he would call super miraculous. When he went to Hong Kong, every single person he prayed for healing for got healed. Deaf kids, deformities, cancer, all these things were going on in this third world country. And he's like, why is that happening? I think part of the reason is that they can't run off in these poor countries, in these poor villages, to a doctor. They can't afford to do that. They're completely reliant on the mercy of God. And God wants to show his miraculous through them. Now, I'm thankful for the medical community, but many of us don't think twice about spending some time in prayer and fasting, calling the elders together to pray over us, anointing us with oil. But instead, we just make a doctor's appointment. Right? That means that that's not the first thing on our mind. The miraculous, God dealing with us. When we have a financial crisis, we don't stand still and stay, stay silent to see the salvation of the Lord and him work in a miraculous way. We work hard to try to figure out how to get this thing fixed. And we begin running around fretting about how we're going to get through this. And I'm just as guilty as the next guy. Next observation here we see is that God tells them to move forward even before the water divides. Look at verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to move forward. As we look at this verse, it almost seems comical to me. Quit crying and tell them to move out. He hasn't even parted the sea yet, by the way. And I wonder if the people are thinking, are we supposed to swim across this thing or what? This statement actually seems to contradict the Lord's command to stand still, right, and see his salvation. But even though God doesn't want them to fight his battles for him, they still need to step out in faith. And so moving forward before seeing the sea parted was an act of faith. And the lesson we can learn from this is sometimes the Lord wants us to take a step of faith even before we see the way clear before us, even before we see the salvation that he's going to work on our behalf. I can't see it how it's all going to work out, but I'm going to trust in the Lord and step in the direction that he's calling me to do. It looks impossible to me at this moment, swimming the Red Sea, as it did to the uh, Israelites 4,000 years ago. And at this point in my sermon, I'm tempted to come up with a lot of examples of impossible things in your life. But I recognize that what seems impossible to you may not seem impossible to me. And what seems impossible to me may not seem impossible to you. But I'll tell you, when you're in the middle of it, it sure feels impossible. It feels like we can't overcome these things. God knows your situation, though, and he is going to help you. He's going to back you. He's going to fight your battle for you. You need only to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Wrapping up this morning, it'd be wonderful if the word miracle regain some of its original meaning in our society. And there are other words that are like this that we throw around. 
A friend of mine in California drew my attention to the overuse of the word awesome in my vocabulary. <laughs> and he's like, is it that awesome? Is it that awe-inspiring? And we use this word so often, it loses it, it's lost its awesome meaning. And although it doesn't seem like God is parting large bodies of water or causing his followers to walk on the water in our modern times, I would still agree with Al Michaels when he says, do you believe in miracles? Yes. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the supernatural work that you do in our lives. And we don't see it very often, but you do break through. And we know that you are fighting our battles for us. We know that you will open a way for us if we only stand still and let you fight the battle for us. And so, Father God, just as the uh, Israelites 4,000 years ago were in fear and trembling of the Pharaoh, and we see things all around us that cause us to fear, I pray that you would help us to look to your salvation. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon series from Elam. If you are encouraged today, would you consider supporting our online ministry through a financial contribution? Personal checks can be made out to Elam Lutheran Church and sent to 11504 26th Street, Northeast, Lake Stevens, Washington, 98258. Or you can give online at elamlutheran.net. Thank you and may God bless you the rest of your day.